It's really good to be with you all this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Thank you. Thank you. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 this morning in God's Word. For a sermon titled, Unequally Yoked. Unequally Yoked. Let's read from God's Word together. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and we're going to end at chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? And what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let us pray. God, we come to meet with you today and to hear from you by your word. Please soften our hearts. If there be any unclean way in us, reveal it. And help us to behold great things from you. By your self-revelation, in these words, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to begin this morning with a command. And after we see the command, which comes right in the very first verse, very first sentence, we're going to take a couple of verses and we're going to see the way that the command is illustrated in the church. There's five ways we see. Then after that, we're going to see the way that the command is illustrated in the history of redemption that God has laid out from the foundation of the world. And we're going to see that a couple more verses after that. And then finally, we're going to see a restatement of the command in chapter 7, verse 1, with how we should specifically apply it. So... Let me restate that with an economy of words. The command comes right out of the gate. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Then you get five nouns in verses 14 and 15 and 16a. And then you get a history of redemption. He actually puts a montage together of six verses from the Old Testament. And you're going to see that at the end of verse 16 through verse 18. And then you're going to see an application restatement of the command not to be unequally yoked, or to state it in the positive, to be equally yoked with believers in your formal partnerships. And you're going to see that in chapter 7, verse 1. So there's your map for the message. You're especially going to see the way that this text illustrates 
this command in light of the church and in light of all of human history. And that's going to take place in the guts of this text between verses 14b all the way down through verse 18. So let's, let's get started with that as we look at this text and hear from God by His own revelation, His Word this morning. So the command, it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So we need to define what a yoke is. It's, it's not uh, like an egg yolk. There's no L in there. It's not the center of an egg. It's not an egg yolk. So what is a yoke? It's not like an egg yolk. It's a yoke is, it can have aeronautic meaning in flight. However, the yoke here comes from an animal husbandry or a livestock agricultural metaphor. A yoke is a wooden beam normally used between a pair of oxen or other animals to enable them to pull together on a load when working in pairs, as oxen normally did and do in some parts of the world today. Some yokes are fitted to individual animals as well, and there's different types of yoke. But a yoke is designed to pair together oxen for working together, for pulling. Other animals can be yoked too as well, like horses or mules or donkeys. But biblically, there's a warning about unequally yoking a donkey with an ox or a clean with an unclean animal. In the Old Testament, there was concern for this, practically speaking, but also for purity's sake. You weren't just supposed to link a clean with an unclean animal. If you mismatch them, you could have unintended results. This is understandable as well if you're running a relay race, as one pastor put it, and if you were to put a, a really, really tall person, you know, when they link together, not a relay race, what do you call it when you link together? There's a way to do that. Three-legged race. You wouldn't want to put somebody that's like Norwegian with somebody that's fairly low to the ground, would you? That would be awkward. You want to link them, you want to match them together. And so this idea of yoking, the metaphor of it is to yoke two oxen together that could, could be similar in height, in size, and to pull together for the work that is to be done. Or you might say to minister together. So how does the Apostle Paul employ this metaphor for the church? To state it negatively, believers should not choose to mismatch themselves in their, for their most sincere work. Their works in, say, covenants of membership in the church or marriage with unbelievers. To state it positively, believers should choose, insofar as they're able, as far as they have choice, to be yoked to other believers for the pulling or the work that is ahead. For the pulling or the work that is ahead. And nothing's more frustrating, right, than whenever you commit to doing a job with someone else only to find out once you start that job that the other person is not committed to the same work in the same way as you are. I think we've all had that experience, wouldn't you agree? Where you get into a job with somebody and, you, and you're, you're yoked with them in the work, and then, and then maybe you didn't do your homework, or maybe you did do your homework, and a person just doesn't turn out to be who it is that you thought that they were. Especially, I think, when you didn't do your homework, this text comes to bear. Uh, if someone has fooled you, that's one thing. If, if you didn't do your homework, I think that's where this text really comes to bear because it's a command not to be unequally yoked. Today's text are for those of us who need to learn to do our homework before committing with even one more person to do an important job, especially as it relates to covenants like membership and marriage. Any important job, there would be some application from this text for the believer, lest you get into the work and realize the other person is half-hearted or not hearted at all by Christian work, which is good work, which is good work. So, uh, you know, what is a believer? Let's define a believer, because I think that's important to kind of uh, make sure that we're on the same page with two, because this command says, don't be unequally yoked with believers, or as a believer, make sure that you partner yourself, especially in formal and important endeavors 
with another believer, not with an unbeliever. So, so what is a believer? Well, a believer is a person who professes to have Christ's work accomplished on the cross, now applied to his or her life for salvation. So just to make it very, very simple, so we have a working definition for the purpose of this sermon, a believer could be defined using all different kinds of nouns and verbs, but for sure, these things would have to be in there. A person who professes, so does this person profess to have Christ's work that Christ accomplished on the cross now applied to his or to her individual life for salvation? That's a believer. So you need to ask yourself, when you're interacting with people, is this a person that meets the definition of a believer? Clearly, you're instructed to interact with unbelievers for the purpose of ministering the gospel to them. Amen, right? So I'm not advocating here that the Bible is, is not textured in how it describes our interactions with unbelievers. I'm simply saying that today this text is talking about not the propagation of the gospel or the sharing of the gospel, this text is talking about our separation for the purpose of the integrity of the gospel. Uh, I'm not going to advocate today some kind of secondary separation. I'm not going to advocate extensive separation, such as was employed in the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the early 20th century, an overreaction, a kind of withdrawal, or a monastic commitment. That's not what I'm talking about today. I don't think the text is indicating that. This text, I believe, is indicating a sober-mindedness about your partnerships, your allies, your agreements in this world in all spheres of sovereignty, but especially in the home and the church, especially in your membership in the church and in your covenant of marriage. Because nothing's more frustrating than committing to do a job and only to find out that once you start, the other person is not committed in the same way as you are to that job. So a believer is someone who professes to have Christ's work accomplished on the cross, now applied to his or her life for salvation. This person will obey Christ's command to be baptized, will have membership conferred to them by a local body of believers in time, will continue to recognize the ramification, the ratification of their covenant each time they take the Lord's Supper together at a church worship service when we assemble or church for this purpose. And so today, when we take the Lord's Supper as a response to this sermon, only believers should take the Lord's Supper. Believers from other churches can take the Lord's Supper that are here as visitors, but unbelievers that are not recognized should not take the Lord's Supper. If you are not a recognized believer in Christ, professing Christ, if you haven't said His work is accomplished on the cross for you, has now been applied to your life for salvation, if you have not received that, then you should not take the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is for believers. Some might protest at this point that the Lord's Supper... Uh, to tell someone no to it is, is disgrace, but I actually think it's grace. I actually think it's grace. Um, if you receive Christ, you have all of his benefits applied to you, namely adoption into his family, the church. From heaven he came and he, had, he, he bought us to be his holy bride, the song says. But the Lord's Supper, when it's properly fenced in the way that I just described, it's a reminder of what you can be in, but yet have determined not to be in. If you'd like to change that, look on your communication card on your bulletin and circle Membership Matters course on your tear-off and engage in spiritual conversations with the elders immediately today. You'll notice them. I think they have these little badges on today. They'll serve you communion at the end of the service, or they won't serve it to you if you're an unbeliever because you'll pass on it, and then you'll need to talk to them and say, you know, I didn't take communion because I don't consider myself a believer, but I'd really like to become a believer. What's that look like? And we'll share the gospel with you, namely the thing that we just shared with you, that Christ's work on the cross applies to you, and you should receive it. And you can receive it today. 
but you must receive it. You need to receive it. And so you can mark your communication card and make yourself known as a seeker of these spiritual things, as an unbeliever that wants to become a believer. But this membership in the church is only exclusive because of those who choose to exclude themselves. To be a set-apart people, we must seek to identify believers, to heed God's imperatives, to go out from and be separate from unbelievers, as this passage exerts in verse 17. And so we have a membership covenant that we covenant to together because we understand that this is not some Enlightenment-era social contract, but this thing that we're involved in is a deep-rooted covenant that stands the test of time across history. And so now we get into our, that what I'm calling the guts of this text, the middle of this text, and that is the way that this command applies in light of the church and in light of the history of redemption. So first, let's take the church, the support of the identity of the, the church. We have five illustrative nouns. These nouns are in the feminine, and they're to illustrate a masculine command, an imperative that's been made already, be yoked only to believers. And so you have five nouns that are in this text that I want to now point out to you. So let's look at the text again, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and let's look at uh, verse number, it's 14b, it's the second half of verse 14. For what partnership, and you might circle that word, if you have one of those uh, journal Bibles, I'm going to give you five words here in these sentences, these questions, these interrogatives where you can circle the nouns. Partnership, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And then the next sentence, you could circle fellowship. What fellowship has light with darkness? And then the next sentence, you could circle accord. What accord has Christ with Belial, or Beliar, some of your translations, it's, it's mixed, whether it's an R or an L there. Or what portion, circle the word portion, does a believer share with an unbeliever? And what agreement, circle the word agreement, has the temple of God with idols? So there's five nouns from the Greek there that come to us. These six verses just have five Greek sentences. In these particular sentences, these are, uh, these are, questions, that are designed, these are questions that are designed to have rhetorical answers of no way, by no means. So partnership is the first one. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And you'd say none, right? So what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None. And the next question here revolves around the word fellowship. What fellowship has light with darkness? And you would say none, right? And then the third question, what accord has Christ with Belial, which is a, a way of speaking of the devil or Satan at this point. He's really picking up on Jewish intertestamental literature, apocalyptic literature. He's picking, on the sect at, picking up on literature that was discovered by the Bedouins from the sect at Qumran that was discovered in the 1940s, but dates back to the first century AD. He's picking on Jewish literature, picking up on that when he picks up on this concept of Belial. And when he says, what accord has Christ with Belial? Uh-uh. None. Or the next one, you can repeat your refrain. What portion, that's your noun, does the believer share with an unbeliever? And you would say, none. And then finally, number five, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And you would say, none. No, 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 no. And for emphasis, again, none. No, 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 and no. Now, when we look at this, these are all ways of saying the very same thing about the church. The church is a community of believers in covenant with one another that's not supposed to formally partner with, not supposed to formally fellowship with, not supposed to formally accord with, not supposed to formally share a portion with, not supposed to formally agree with unbelievers, idols, the enemy's emissaries, darkness, uncleanliness. So there is a... a, a separation here that is deep-rooted in 
what this text is trying to convey to us and really what all of Scripture is trying to get convey to us, we are supposed to be a set-apart people. And if we, if we don't seek with our might, and really with the might of God, the Almighty God, if we don't seek to live as a set-apart people, all of our efforts to reach the world will be dwarfed by the way that the world conforms us to be like them. So this is missional in the sense that we are supposed to be the set-apart ones, the called-out ones that are calling others to be called out of their sin-stricken condition and into the glorious presence of Christ. And that is a loving thing. It is unloving to amalgamate ourselves into the world in such a way that we are not able to be readily identified as different. That's the very meaning of holiness is to be different. And so we're separate for the purpose of holiness. We ought not be separate in a manner of legalism for the purpose of making fun of those that are not in Christ. We should be grieved by non-believers. But we should not commit the libertine sin, the, li- the liberal sin on the other end of, of the woes of, of aligning ourselves and agreeing with ourselves so closely with the world that they can't tell the difference between us. Applications abound. I'm sure you can make some. But the purpose of this is, is that the identity of the church is, a, is very important to the obedience of the command that you as a believer are not to be yoked with an unbeliever. This is part of the witness of the church. Now, let me pause for a second and and think about a a potential issue that could, could arise here. I don't think that this text is talking about marriage so much as it's talking about membership. I think if you read this on balance in Corinthians, I I don't think it's talking about marriage so much as it is talking about membership. But it's difficult to talk about one without the other for two reasons. For one reason, because the idea of covenant comes most to us in membership in the church and in a covenant of marriage. That's really the idea. It's where we can really get the most mileage out of it. The other reason is because when you read First and Second Corinthians in the Bible, there's plenty of teaching about the covenant of marriage. And there's plenty of admonitions about how to go about getting into a marriage if you're not already in one, and then how you should stay in one if you are in one. There's even a passage, and I think it's relevant to stay here because that's where our mind goes. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 that warns the believer that if they find themselves converting after or becoming very serious about the gospel after they've married an unbeliever, they should not seek to torpedo that marriage or leave that union because of their budding faith. They should stay in that marriage for the sake of any children that might be given to that union, and they should honor that marriage in hopes of seeing their spouse come to faith in Christ. So if you find yourself in that situation, I want you to know there's plenty of testimonies in this church that I could put you onto of people that have stayed faithful in a 1 Corinthians 7 sense to that marriage for many, many years, and they can help you understand covenant. And I surely would not want you to have no hope because of this text in this sermon. 
in the sense of if you have not done this rightly, this yoking rightly, that you're a castaway from God, and that God can't use you now. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you read Corinthians, what you find is this is an amalgamation of messed up people who have really broken a lot of commands of God, and now God wants to use them. But the way that he wants to use them is to instruct their hearts on light from darkness, on clean from unclean, on representing him as his priestly figures, and on representing pagans through idolatry. And so what we're representing the enemy as a pagan in in idolatry. And so what we need here is some gravity, some depth of thinking about what we do now forward rather than strictly being emotional about from where where we come. So more to the point, let's say it like this with marriage and then I'll get off of this this tangent. But let let me just say it like this. If you're in a marriage, I've already said what to do. But if you're like the widow in 1 Corinthians 7.39, that's been freed to remarry because her husband has passed away, 1 Corinthians 7.39, she's told she can go ahead and find a husband only in the Lord. She must marry a believer in the Lord. That gives us a lot of Corinthians Corinthian license to understand what yoke means. Don't put the yoke of marriage on the person next to you that's not a believer. An Ethiopian and a North Dakotian that are believers have more in common than a North Dakotian and a South Dakotian. I know North and South Dakotians don't really like each other anyway, but I'm trying to make a point. Believer and believer from other sides of the world have more in common for marriage than unbeliever and believer from other sides of the street. That's what this text means. Now, there could be other issues, too. I mean, there's other things to consider in the chemistry of two families coming together than just simply whether or not this person professes to be a believer. But that is a baseline. If this person is an unbeliever, you should not, you shouldn't marry them if you're the person that's eligible to be married, but you also should be the person in your family that says to a person that's going to enter into a one flesh union with like an ox and a donkey, with like a a tall and a short, with like a believer and unbeliever, you should be the person that comes along and says, let's read this Bible passage. That's not good for you. And so it's not to say that you should torpedo a marriage that you're already in. It is to say, for heaven's sakes, can we love those that come after us enough to help them not disobey the clear command of God in the same manner that we may once have? Could we have some courageous Christians in this church to say, I married an unbeliever, and that was not wise, and I want to instruct my children and my grandchildren not to. Is that good enough? Can we do that? I think that that the text gives us that application, and I think the church, the identity of the church as the temple of living God, not just individually, but wholly, holistically, it's both corporate and individual in Corinthians. I think the identity of the church is part part of the implication, part of the support for the application of this command of not being unequally yoked. The church is to have partnerships and fellowships and accord and portion and agreement in such a way that shows a distinction between the church and the world, not for the purpose of insulting the world, but for the purpose of pointing out to the world that they're not a part of something that they can be a part of in Christ. And that's the reason why when we gather, we, we wouldn't just baptize anybody. We would baptize a believer who has a credible profession of faith who understands the gospel. We wouldn't just serve the Lord's Supper to anybody. 
It's not just like a snack that we have at recess, after recess. It's something that is deeply sacred as representative of the very body and blood of Christ. It's to be taken only by believers. Why? So that the new among us can look and say, well, let me examine myself. What would it mean for me to be a part of that, that thing? Seems that that's an exclusive group, the church. Yeah, not in, not in some as as Sydney uh, as as Sydney Harrow said, not in a sense of a Christian ghetto, or, or some kind of a, a of a swanky club, but in the sense of a colony of the kingdom of heaven, where where the colony is recognized as being from another world, from another country. That's what the church is to be like, and that's what we do when we rightly take the world's the the, the Lord's supper, is we show our identity as the church in the world for the purpose of bringing hope to the world, but not for the purpose of whitewashing the sins of the world, let alone whitewashing our own sins. So these nouns help us. More could be said, but let us, um, let us move on. Now, there are references, the history of redemption, in our next part of this, of this passage, and they are given to us. It's a montage of six Old Testament passages that are put together to tell the story of how we are the people of God, the church, and how the promises of post-exile Israelites also apply to us and how God's new covenant has been ushered, has been ushered in for us as believers in the church and the history of redemption, of redemption directly applies to us. So all of the Old Testament, all of the, of the covenant promises find their yes in Christ. And so we, as in Christ, therefore, have the covenant promises also applied to us as believers. And so, so listen to, the, to this, this montage of six verses that you wouldn't even know that it was a montage if I didn't tell you or if you didn't read your footnotes in your Bible, probably. But it's a montage of six verses, verses from Leviticus and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Ezekiel again and 2 Samuel and Isaiah again, where Paul sort of laces these things together and, and let's see how he preaches this sermon. See how he gives this to us. Look at verse 16 and following. What agreement has the temple of God with idols was our fifth question. Now look at the next sentence in your Bible. For we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. So it's not just I am, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but we are together as a whole church, temple of the living God, God who is alive. And God said, and let your eyes glance down to verse 17 and look at the very first stanza of that verse. You see the phrase, says the Lord? Do you see that? Now let your eyes go down to the end of verse 18. Do you see that? Those last four words, says the Lord Almighty. I want you to key in on the word says or said. This is a statement of creation. You remember in the beginning when God created the heavens of the earth, what did he do? He what? And there was light. He, he spoke into existence. He said, and it was. He said, and it was. This is a theological statement about creation, thus applying to new creation, because God said, God says, God says, this is a, a, a way of saying that the, the history of Revelation applies to you, church, that creation itself cries out for you to understand the manner in which God operates. He speaks and it is. He creates out of nothing. And he created your salvation out of nothing. He took deadness and he brought life. He took darkness and he brought light. It is as much of a miracle that your heart beats for Christ in faith as it is that there are green trees, green leaves on trees every spring. 
It's, it's as much of a miracle. It's, it's just as much of a miracle that God made this world from nothing as he made your salvation from nothing. It's a miracle, which really brings you to worship, doesn't it? Listen in light of that what the God says, and then hear the way the covenant promises are pieced together by the Apostle Paul under the guidance of the Holy Spirit as the apostle to the Gentiles, which is most of us. So listen, we're a temple of living God, and God said, quote, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see that sentence? Beautiful sentence, isn't it? I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be, my, be their God and they shall be my people. God takes the initiative in expressing this, this redemption. In the history of redemption, God is the initiator. And he brings this, this covenant that he makes unilaterally with, with Abraham, he brings it to bear on us now as he has brought it to bear on Israel. He brings us in and all of the promises of Scripture find their yes in Jesus Christ. He is quoting Leviticus 26, 11, and 12, as well as Ezekiel 37, 27. I'm going to read to you from Leviticus 26, just very quickly. I don't have time to read all these cross-references in this sermon, but I want to read this one, and maybe one more, because I think its, it's relevance is there. It says in Leviticus chapter 26, Verse, verses 11 and 12. I love it when technology works. Sometimes it doesn't. Let me just look at the old print. I can still find it. My eyes work for me. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. Now, here's what Paul's citing, and here's what it says. He says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, verse 13, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect, made you walk upright. You see the connection with the word yoke here? The idea of yoke on oxen or the idea of equal partnership of matching up like with like instead of like with unlike. And he says here, I'll make my dwelling among you and I will walk among you and be your God. Well, clearly that is a a promise that finds its final exaltation in Revelation. If you're to read the end of the Bible, that phrase is, is listed in the very last paragraphs of the Bible and Revelation. And so what you find here is, is that God's new creation is initiated by God himself, and he intends to make his dwelling among these people, these people that have been defined so far as the church, and he's going to walk among them and be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he grounds the therefore in that. He says, therefore, go out from their midst. He speaks to us as his people. Go out from their midst. Be separate from them. These imperatives are grounded in the, in the indicative statements of God's promises. Separate. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And he comes back, he engulfs it in his own promises and his own initiative by quoting from 2 Samuel seven fourteen In verse 18, he says, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Notice the adoption language, the family language. You're, you're a temple. 
where I will live and dwell and interact, and your family, where I will share Thanksgiving meal together. We are a family too. I'll be a father to you. Be sons and daughters to me, says the Most Almighty, says the Lord Almighty. This is what he says. He has said it, and it will be. Just the same as he spoke light into existence. As he spoke human beings into existence, and Genesis 1 records it, so has he said it, and it will be. That is the grounding for him saying to us, be separate. Be separate. Don't touch unclean things. Don't don't be unequally yoked. Go out from their midst. Interestingly, he's quoting, and I'll skip going to it because it would take a minute, but he's quoting from the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 52 and 53. You know what we read for communion? The Lord's suffering servant. How, how, well, we read it every communion. It's Isaiah 52 and 53. He's actually quoting in that imperative, Isaiah 52, 11, when he gives this imperative that was given 800 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was given under the prophet Isaiah, where he prophesies about how the Messiah would come and what the Messiah would be like. And these imperatives are given in Isaiah 52, 11. And Paul, the apostle, feels the freedom, actually the, the unction under the Spirit to embed those messianic prophecies right here in this passage in light of God's creating his people and making his people into his temple where he will dwell and his family where he will interact as a father. And, and he in, intends to do that, if we can put this together, for his people that are now gathered out as the church. And so verse 7 begins with, we have these promises. You see that? Since we have these promises, what promises? What have we just been talking about? Remember the montage of the six verses? Leviticus and Isaiah and Ezekiel. and You see those verses? Since we have these promises, just thumb through. There's like three pages of Old Testament for every one page of New Testament. We have the promises from the Bible, particularly listed in the Old Testament, and we have, some, some of them have not been fulfilled and in, in complete yet. We have these promises, and the fulfillment of them have been inaugurated in the church. They've, been, they've begun in God's people corporately, the church. And so what we do together here, it really matters. Like, we're not just an, ex, we're not just an extension of being helpful to a government program here, there, or yonder. What we do here. It, it matters in light of the history of salvation. It matters in light of what God says he's doing in the world. This is the church. So his command, it's, it's not just some sort of guilt tactic that we might live a little bit better life. What he's saying is, I'm doing all this. And you get to be a part of what I'm doing for you and through you. Separate from unbelievers in a noticeable way in your most formal covenants, that'd be a really good step for you. Resolve not to marry an unbeliever. Resolve not as a church to be willy-nilly with welcoming people into membership. At least make sure that they know what the, what the plan is here. Make sure they know the gospel. At least make sure that they know who Jesus is and what he's done for them. This, is, this seems to be the most minor and basic application to this text that I can come up with. 
And so we see here the identity of the church with five nouns, and we see the history of redemption with six cross-references so woven together from Old Testament law and prophets that by the Apostle Paul that it just looks like a brand new statement of truth, but it's actually the grounding of God's new creation using the same words that he used in creation. And I said, and I say, and I say. And so since we have these promises, now Paul in chapter 7 verse 1 restates the command for us again with different, different words. But I love what he does here. As soon as he says, since we have these promises, before he says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, inward part, outward part, whole, outward part, whole body, spirit, union. Before he says that, talking about holiness and bringing it to completion, before he gives us that imperative and a reverential fear of God, he calls us something. He uses the case of direct address. Do you see it? It's a, it starts with the word be and it ends in love. Do you see that in your passage there? What does he identify the people that he's, he's exhorting with this call to be separate from the world, and, and, and especially in their most formal yokings, and their most formal covenants? But what does he call them? It's a beautiful thing he calls them. Chapter 7, verse 1. He says, since we have these promises, before he says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, he calls them something using this case of direct aggress. You see the word? He says, I want you to say it with me. Beloved. 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 It's the word for divine love is the root agape. And he gives us this, this statement of direct address, beloved. He says, since you people that resonate with these truths, even with your tender little consciences, that are going to be all nervous and bothered about whether or not you're in or out of salvation, listen to me. You wouldn't be turned toward this if you weren't in. Listen to me, beloved ones. Those of you that know me, listen to me. If you've surrendered to Christ, let us, because he's already made us who we're going to be, let us partner to become that thing that he envisions us to be. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. Let us cleanse ourselves and let us labor together as oxen would equally yoked to complete, to bring to completion, to perfection, to maturity, to bring to completion holiness. To bring to completion holiness. God is loving, right? God is also holy. We're bringing to completion his attribute of holiness in his people because we are his people set apart for beautiful things. We obey because we are not in order to become God's people. You are obedient because you are God's people, not in order to become God's people. The reason you obey this command to be equally yoked is because you are not in order to become. That's, that is the grounding of this, is it is God's initiative for our salvation, for your salvation. Now, the application here with, clean, clean, with pursuing cleanness is purity. Some of your translations may even say purity. That, that is the, the application, is purity. It's not how you've lived, but it's how you live now as a believer moving forward in pursuing purity, in pursuing a lifestyle that does not defile the body, in maturing holiness, in reverence for God. Because God sees every wink, he sees every kiss, he sees every screen, he sees every seat. Fear his power, experience his beloved, his love. Live in his holiness, pulling together in amongst, amongst God's people in membership in the church, waging war against sin, 
shepherding souls together. Together, this imagery is having yoked together with believers that we articulate the gospel in our covenant membership to those that are not. And we inspire our members to yoke only with other believers that can also articulate the gospel. And we help people to find suitable marriage partners that are actually, that are actually believers and not unbelievers. And we obey the command to be equally yoked because we are God's people. We don't obey it in hopes of becoming God's people. Hope is the engine of good behavior. Hope is the engine of good behavior. And uh, I want to read you a, a passage from the New Testament. It's uh, Matthew 11. Perhaps you've heard it before, or maybe it's new to you. It's one of those verses, it's a, I call it a Sunday school verse, because it was one of those that my Sunday school teacher growing up wanted me to memorize. Um, and it matters, it's Matthew 11, that's what it is. It matters because, because of the use of the word yoke. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, and, and 29, and 30. Um, the heading of the section is, Come to me, and I will give you rest. It says, uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine thirty. 29, 30, Come to me, all you who labor. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And Jesus says, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Take my yoke and you will find rest. Rest for your souls. A promise of Jesus in verse 30. There's a hope in every one of these promises. He says in verse 30, For my yoke, my yoke is easy. My burden, contrasted with the Pharisees of the day, my burden is light. Let us come to Jesus today and worship at his table. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we are one at your table, because you've made us one, as you are one, we now worship you through receiving of this ordinance that you left for us, your supper, your communion. Help us to gather in such a manner that we are distinct from the world, that today is a resolution to grow up in you as a people that have gone out from the world and as a people that have something of substance to say to the world, not only by virtue of our gospel words, but also by virtue of our gospel witness how we live our lives. May every sphere of sovereignty in which you have created in this world, whether it be the state, whether it be, whether it be those that we work for in business, whether it be an education institution, may all of them be impacted by our being a holy people, bringing holiness to completion. May everything the earth yield to your sovereignty and to your goodness that we would be yours as you have said that we can be through Christ. Amen.